that it wasn't the same condition that my wife had. There were some big question marks and what does this mean? And the pediatric cardiologists weren't painting a very positive picture. It was, so this was really our aha moment of, uh-oh, we have a problem here. And then all of a sudden it was like 24 seven worrying about my son, Russell, and what did this mean? And what was his prognosis gonna be? Errors were kind of something we got used to. It was something that kind of happened frequently. Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the U.S., killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews, and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, RemediesCounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error, chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello, humanity. I'm Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews. When Donald Lepp's pregnant wife was diagnosed with a serious heart condition, and then a few months later their newborn son was also diagnosed with a similar but different life-threatening heart condition, the Lepp family started two similar but different simultaneous journeys in the healthcare system, one designed for children and the other for adults. And along the way, they encounter many forms of medical error. In his book, Heartbroken, Donald recounts the emotional roller coaster his family endured as their life and death care intersected with a bureaucratic medical system stuck in status quo. Too often we hear of families doubly devastated when the hospital denies and or delays a resolution and reconciliation. For the Lepp family, developing clear communication and trust with the healthcare team was crucial for positive outcomes. In our interview, Donald shares his insight about their experiences afforded through hindsight. As Donald notes, medical errors are commonplace, a reality that cannot be denied. And what is most salient is how the healthcare system responds to those errors. Depending on that response, a bad situation may become tragic or may become an opportunity of learning and meaning. We all know what injured patients prefer. If you would like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, and all of the major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. 
premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. And if you need the support of an experienced counselor for your own encounter with medical error and or living with a complex chronic illness or illnesses, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Now, here's my interview with Donald Lepp and a word of warning as always, that some folks may be triggered by Donald's experiences with the healthcare system. Awesome, thanks Donald. Uh, so I'll ask you the same question I ask all of my guests, which is where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? Oh, this, this blends right well with the book because this is kind of how I start the book. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm a farm kid. Um, I grew up in southwestern Manitoba, just north of Brandon. Uh, that's where I spent all my years growing up and doing my thing as a farm kid. It was We had a fairly decent sized farm operation, so that was kind of my first work experience and that kind of thing too. So that's, that's, and that's been a big influence in my life even, you know, years later. I've never farmed, but you know, those learning experiences were definitely important to me, you know, and have influenced me a great deal ever since. Mm, I grew up on a farm as well. We were cow-calf, so beef uh, cattle. Mm -hmm. Primarily grain farm, machines and tractors and combines and that stuff. <laughs> yeah, the only thing I liked about farming was helping deliver the calves. That was pretty cool. Okay, cool. The, the rest of it felt like child labor. <laughs> So eventually you must have left the farm. Yep. Where, what happened in your life after that? So, um, uh, of course, the time I graduated from high school was the late 80s. And uh, any, anyone who uh, wanted to start farming at that point in time had some kind of death wish of some kind. It was, wasn't good times. So I knew my life was heading in a different direction. So I, uh, uh, I eventually got involved in... Uh, had some engineering training and did some business admin work. I've, I've worked in manufacturing, heavy industry, and now I'm actually a project manager for, and I work for a federal crown corporation, so. Okay. Uh, and today we're going to talk about your, and your family's experiences with the healthcare system. So mm -hmm. take us down that road. This obviously, and this is, this is one of the things when I share with medical professionals is that my involvement in healthcare was also is under duress. This is something we never want to do. Um, but uh, as many people point out to me, and I quite agree, is that healthcare is part of everything we do, even if our involvement is infrequent. Uh, in my case, uh, it became very frequent and it kind of has taken over our lives, really. My uh, wife uh, was diagnosed with a congenital heart condition when she was pregnant with our son. And so being a congenital uh, heart condition, it was, there was kind of, that posed two big questions. One, uh, was she able to give birth naturally? Was this gonna cause a problem with the pregnancy and the whole birthing process? And the second thing is, okay, what about the baby? It's a congenital condition. So 
theoretically he can inherit it. So that kind of immersed us in the whole world of cardiology. And from that point on, and that was about four months into her pregnancy, then all of a sudden the appointments with cardiologists and pediatricians and extra ultrasounds and all these different things started popping up in our calendar and it literally took over our life. So uh, that's kind of how things all started. Wow, yeah, so total immersion. Yep. Your wife's diagnosed with kind of congenital heart condition while yes. pregnant. So how did that turn out? Well, this is kind of the funny thing was that we had been aware of uh, her, her dad had the condition. And in their early 20s, both her and her sister were screened for it. And both of them were negative. And, and so my wife was, became pregnant when she was uh, in her late 30s. And so we thought we'd close the book on this. This wasn't an issue. It wasn't a problem. You know, because her dad had the condition, when we got the diagnosis, it wasn't this earth-shattering moment of, you know, our lives are over, everything is bad. Um, we knew what it was. We knew it could likely be treated just with medication and drug therapy. Um, yeah, her professional hockey career is over, and that was actually joked about at the time. We could actually joke about it. and But uh, it wasn't this you know, aha moment for us. It was something, oh, it's, you know, it wasn't good news, but it wasn't the end of the world. So that's when kind of the focus, at least for me anyway, started focusing on the baby. So that was kind of the big issue was, and so we were booked for a, a uh, uh, we were booked for a fetal ultrasound while she was pregnant, which uh, didn't show anything conclusive. And then after he was born, a couple weeks after, uh, that's when we had a, an echocardiogram done uh, and, and an ultrasound and all the diagnostics were done. And that's when he was diagnosed with his condition. And so that was a blow. But the surprising thing that came out of that whole discussion was that it wasn't the same condition that my wife had. So that was like, there were some big question marks and what does this mean and the pediatric cardiologists weren't painting a very positive picture it was so this was really our aha moment of uh-oh we have a problem here so that's where things kind of went a different direction where my wife's condition kind of took a back seat and then all of a sudden it was like 24 7 worrying about my son Russell and what did this mean and what was his prognosis going to be and uh, we had a very honest conversation with our cardiologist and, uh, and, and he had some very profound words. He says, it can go one of three ways. It can get better, it can get worse, or it can stay the same. And that seems like a flippant response, but it was also something that, you know, it's like we didn't know and he was conveying to us that he didn't know. So we were kind of in this together and it was the admission that, you know what, these kids with congenital heart conditions, they're complicated and really hard to predict. And you kind of have to be prepared for just about anything. And that can be hard to sort of accept or process that they don't have definitive answers for, mm -hmm. you know, whatever your particular context is. Right. Tell us about some of the 
errors that you experienced, and I'm sure you had many encounters with the hospital and the system and everything, so. Errors were something, I, uh, I'm trying to think of, you know, some specific, you know, really clear cut. And, and, and the funny thing that keeps coming to mind is that errors were kind of something we got used to. It was something that kind of happened frequently and it was really how the situations were handled that really, you know, showed us, you know, whether we should trust our team or not, or it was an exercise in honesty is kind of what I call it. And because the thing is, and this is something that I've learned in the years since, because I, you know, when, when this all happened, it was about 12 years ago. So I've had a lot of time to reflect on this and try to come up with something that makes some sense. And the thing is that errors happen every day. The, if you go and talk to healthcare leaders, they will agree with you that, yeah, that's not a controversial statement. Errors happen. It's what happens afterwards, the actions that come out of it that really tell the tale. If people are uncomfortable admitting that there was an error, or if we you know, try to do something to cover it up, or we don't, aren't completely honest with the families, these are the things that muddy the waters. And when you get into situations where the family is at odds with the hospital, then people start circling the wagons and then you know, communication breaks down. Because the one thing that I've learned in these past 12 years is that many times the errors themselves are related to communication, but then there's the poor communication that happens afterwards. Communication is huge in this whole process. And, and it, it's, it's kind of funny how, you know, just in our conversation and just to kind of show you how integrated medical errors were in our whole journey, we've actually already talked about one in our, in our brief discussion so far. And that is the fact that when my wife and her sister were screened, that they didn't that, that they were cleared they were determined that they did not have this version of cardiomyopathy so this is where some good explanations and some good communication you know it would have been easy for us to be frustrated well why did they do that like what are they incompetent like what's going on and we had a very good team with us explain why this is hard to detect why these kinds of errors happen. And the thing is, for instance, when my wife's father was diagnosed with his condition, it was very, very fortunate that it was even diagnosed because one of the side effects of this condition is sudden cardiac death. Many times, so when he was diagnosed, he was in his late 30s, it was probably in the late 70s, early 80s. We didn't have diagnostic imaging, we didn't have nearly the technology that we have today that would make this condition detectable. Uh, it was through some fortuitous circumstances where he was diagnosed and then it was able to be managed through drug therapy. So a lot of times in those days, they would only find out about this condition after somebody has already passed. So this is where we kind of got in our very first experience we kind of got a little bit of an orientation into medical errors and kind of why they happen. And sometimes 
they're beyond the control of the medical professionals. And we as patients sometimes have to uh, appreciate that and understand it and accept it. Your point about communication, because it, it sounds like that uh, your wife and her sister should not have been given what sounded like an absolute non-diagnosis. They should have hedged their bet or their, right. their non-diagnosis. Absolutely true. And, and so, so the thing is that both of their kids are now screened for it. And, and so our son actually like inherited a version of the cardiomyopathy. But the thing is, uh, my sister-in-law's children have also been, uh, are also get screened too. And they're screened periodically, you know, every five years. Like th this is something, and the reason being, and this is part of the communication and good explanation to us is we have now kind of understood that the reason this wasn't detected early on is because as in my wife and her dad, it was both uh, adult onset uh, condition. And my question was, well, did she always have cardiomyopathy from the time she was born? Yes, it would be there. But unless you went into the heart, did a biopsy and pulled out the tissue, you likely wouldn't know about it. It wouldn't become apparent until later. It was an adult onset of, of the condition. That's what was so surprising when our son was diagnosed when he was only a couple weeks old. We thought that if it was going to be diagnosed, it might only be diagnosed when he was an adult sometime. So that's what really took us by surprise. The other thing that occurs to me is that seeing the regularity, the ubiquitousness of the medical errors, that it must have made you and your wife in an extra vigilant state. Yeah, we call it hypervigilance and it's pretty common amongst us parents of heart kids, for sure. And that works against you and, you know, and for you because we have a quote unquote heart kid, we circulate with a bunch of people who have heart kids and you know, we you know, socialize together and, and we support each other. But the thing is we have to calm down a little bit when we go out into the regular world and when someone you know, has this wonderful announcement that they're pregnant, uh, our reaction is, is everything okay? You know, and, and, and that's our reaction from our view of the world and we have to kind of okay wait a minute we're the exception we're the one in ten thousand many people have pregnancies and everything goes normal and everyone's healthy that's that's a normal thing and we kind of have to dial back the anxiety but that's our hypervigilant nature nature so would you say that you and or your wife have experienced trauma through all of this process absolutely both of us and both differently oh. um um, my perspective is very different than my wife's and this became very apparent when I was writing my book because a lot of the writing and different things she would read certain things and I had to be very and then you know this sparked a lot of discussions like you know do you remember when and we would have a discussion related to this and and the thing is it was interesting because having some separation from the situation showed us a lot of things about ourselves and you have to realize that I'm truly in the caregiver role where my wife has a dual role. She is a caregiver and a patient both. So her perspective is very different. And 
there's a lot of uh, angst and anxiety related to, oh, am I the person who passed along this gene to my child? So there's a lot to, the, to that to it as well. Yeah, very, very layered for her, especially. Yeah. And, and that's where we've had to really learn and kind of understand each other that sometimes I can be a little flippant and I can, you know, uh, be a little dismissive of some of the fears she may be feeling, but I have to take a step back and realize, you know what, her perspective is totally different. When I ask, you know, what was the most egregious medical error and response? Because often I hear from my, my clients that often how the hospital or the doctor responded was more traumatic than the original error. When I talked about some of our initial experiences with our cardiology team, um, in my opinion, and I'd be happy to discuss this at length it's on another occasion, is that I think we lucked into a team of physicians who are bar none the, be the best we have experienced. And almost instantly, there was a trust uh, formed between us. So many of the issues we dealt with, we came at it from a position of trust. And that completely changes the dynamic. And so what has happened years later? So that's my son's team. So now with my wife, we've also had to deal with the adult team, a totally, completely different dynamic. And, you know, when we get a certain test result, we're far more questioning because that trust isn't there. When we start to question them, they get a little defensive and then we have this back and forth and there isn't that dynamic. So some of some of the some of the more egregious things that have happened to us have been happen have happened with teams who don't know us very well and and so that's where this whole communication thing breaks down you know for, for instance you know my son when he was quite young he broke his arm and the funny thing is we felt we were really these really technically sound advocates and then when we had to take him into the emergency room and he was treated, we had to learn about something completely new. And that was orthopedics. We knew nothing. Uh, so a couple of years later, um, my wife was in a car accident and uh, she was taken to an emergency room and uh, she was brought in and then she waited for a long time uh, to even see a doctor I don't think she actually ever did see a doctor, but they diagnosed her, well, you've got a sprained toe and a dislocated toe. You know, it's you know, nothing we can do for you other than just give you uh, some, some uh, painkillers and you know, you'll just have to rest it, et cetera. Well, the funny thing that happened was the next day we got called by another emergency physician who said, um, we need you to come back. Oh? Well, the radiologist looked at the x-rays and we think your, your, you know, uh, your foot may be broken. So we had to go back to the hospital and there was a whole, a whole myriad of communication problems that happened is we were supposed to come in for a CT scan to clarify, to get a little bit better data on 
the, the foot and, and, and how it was broken and, and this kind of thing. And we ended up waiting nearly all day until like the CT scan department closed at four. We almost missed it. Like it was, it was a gong show. Uh, we were supposed to be, when we arrived, the doctor was supposed to be notified and we we're supposed to be taken right in where we ended up waiting all day. And you can imagine, you know, I'm the person who's going to the desk saying what's going on. You know, we were notified, like, you know, and so then there's this animosity building, you know, a poor triage nurse is wondering, well, who on earth is this guy and why is he hassling me? And, and so this whole thing, so, you know, it gets to this whole boiling point of, you know, what's going on. And, and, and the thing is that if, you know, this hadn't been solved. Now, the good thing was, and I appreciate it, was we were called. They admitted the error. And they went and did the right things, the diagnostic things. But their communication process was so bad. The goodwill they created by admitting the error was blown up when we arrived back and had to wait nearly eight hours for a test. And, you know, all the subsequent things that happened as a result of that. Um, you know, and it ended up that my wife was diagnosed with a fracture. She had to actually have surgery on the foot and it, it's actually been a very significant injury you know, on an ongoing basis. And it's just, and the, the funny side note to this story was thankfully I had a little bit of advocacy knowledge and experience, uh, to know that you know, if I wanted to solve this problem or if I wanted to raise this issue in a productive way, probably dealing with it right then and there wasn't going to get me very far. Um, my job was to kind of, we need to solve the problem. We need to get my wife's foot dealt with. We have to deal with the other stuff later and kind of prioritize this. So I actually, you know, I was pretty upset and then I was, you know, it's like, I, I can't let this stand. Like, I mean, something has to be said and this, this issue needs to be raised. And so thankfully, uh, I let myself cool off for a couple of weeks. And then I, I figured out who the chief medical officer was and I figured out who the uh, CEO was. And I sent them an email and I tried to present something that made some sense. And to be honest with you, the hospital's reaction to it was phenomenal. Uh, there was no arguing with me. Um, uh, I, I received a response back from the chief medical officer, and he actually was quite well aware of the situation, of what was happened. I, I was impressed with his knowledge, and he didn't throw his own staff under the bus. He kind of explained the circumstances, and then he kind of explained what happened. And the, the funny thing that happened through this whole story was in about two or three months, I was invited to participate in a workshop to look at their emergency procedures. And it was quite an eye-opening day that I spent with them. And then eventually I was invited to join the hospital board. So <laughs> that's not how everything goes out, happens. I know that many times when people do, do the exact same route that I did, you know, go and talk to a senior executive, that sometimes they get shut down and it doesn't go very well, but in my situation, I kind of got lucky and, you know, they listened to me and it, it became, in my opinion, a net positive. So it sort of sounds like you're an accidental patient advocate. Oh, absolutely. 
Uh, heading back towards the different teams, the heart teams that your son and your wife had, were they at different hospitals? Yes. How much of, of that hospital culture at each do you think was part of the equation and why there were such different supports and services? There probably is a different difference in culture. In fact, now in, in my current position, I know there's quite a difference in cultures between the hospitals, but the issue in my mind is really rooted in pediatrics versus the adult system. We are treated night and day different in the pediatric system versus the adult system. And, and that's, you know, I, I don't think you'd find anyone who would really disagree with that, that the, 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 two, the, the two programs work so differently. Uh, how, how so? I can't. Well, the thing is that, that uh, the whole concept of patient and family-centered care, you know, is not a new concept, but it really started in pediatrics. And the thing is, is that no matter how you slice a situation or no matter how difficult a family might be to deal with, you have to get informed consent from them. So parents are on the playing field, whether you want them there or not. And so, therefore, I think a few people kind of realize that, you know what, it's much easier if we work with families as opposed to against them. And I don't think that realization has really taken hold in the adult system. Our healthcare system talks a good game when it comes to patient and family-centered care. When it comes to push and shove the reality is a little bit different. And, and this whole issue with COVID has shown that to me in spades, that there are a lot of really good patient and family-centered policies out there, but when push comes to shove, when a decision has to be made, that can be thrown out the window very quickly. Yeah, I uh, come from an HIV advocacy background, so that was my first exposure to tokenism. Mm -hmm. And so the AIDS community worked really hard to move beyond being tokenized to having meaningful impacts mm -hmm. within different organizations sure. and on boards and stuff. And But we see, as you say, how easily that slips away when it's already marginalized within the system. Correct. And we get something like COVID coming through. Yeah, they're the first to go. For sure. So tell me a bit about your patient advocacy, the groups you're involved with, what your focus is. Okay, so Presently, and what is really monopolizing my time right now is that I've been through many experiences. I, I've been doing this for probably 10 or 11 years now. Um, I started first with the Family Centered Care Council with the Stollery Children's Hospital. That was uh, a very positive experience as far as patient advocacy is concerned. Um, a, a really phenomenal group that really puts patients front. Well, patients run it. And, and, and the amount of buy-in from staff and executive is really quite phenomenal. So I've been a little spoiled. Um, I've also been involved in uh, some hospital boards. I've been involved with uh, several different committees in quality and patient safety uh, uh, here in Winnipeg with the College of Registered Nurses of Manitoba, with the Child Health Quality Council, with our Children's Hospital here in uh, Winnipeg. 
about three years a board member with Seven Oaks General Hospital and then now in my position with the Winnipeg Regional Health Authority on the board. And just in January of this year, I took on the role of the chair of the Quality and Patient Safety Committee, which is a committee of the board of directors. So that is a large amount of time and energy over the years. And have you been paid for any of those positions or given honorariums for any of that work? Um, in, in my position uh, with the uh, Regional Health Authority, we are appointed by the Minister of Health and there is a stipend that we get for a certain amount of time that we spend. It's, it's uh, predetermined by the province. You could look it up online what we actually get. It's, it's, it's not a huge amount. Um, but the thing is, I've been involved with uh, different pan-Canadian organizations like uh, the Canadian Patient Safety Institute and Canadian Foundation for Healthcare Improvement. And through some of those groups, they are paying patient advocates now and, and really trying to identify some of those groups. But many of the groups I've worked with, it's been gratis. I know recently uh, I expressed interest in joining a couple of advocacy groups or mm -hmm. where they needed a patient advocate. Yeah. And I started asking what the payment was. You know, if everybody else on this committee is getting paid, why aren't mm -hmm. the patients? And right. the response I got, oh, we never budgeted for that. Yeah, and, and one of the issues is that many people who work in the system many times they will go for to a conference or a workshop and they will like it's part of their professional development so it, it's part of their so so kind of how they get compensated is a little different where patients are and caregivers uh, are taking time like if i go and speak to a nursing uh, nursing students at a university chances are I'm losing two or three hours out of my work day. So those are the things that I have to consider is that I'm not only doing it for free, I'm actually giving up, like if I have to book holiday time or something along that line. So I'm actually giving up something. I'm actually less than zero. But, and this is why, you know, and, and many patient advocates will tell you this is that they're becoming very choosy in what they choose to do. Absolutely, I can attest to that myself. Uh, can you give a couple other or one other example of medical error and especially what you wish had have been done differently, either with the error itself or in how they responded to the error? I'm not sure if you can, well, you know what, I'm gonna call it a medical error. And it's something that happened when, and it's something that really has kind of nagged me for a long time. Uh, so my son, I mentioned that he did have cardiomyopathy and he, we, he, he's taken us for several thrill rides and uh, he actually eventually had to have a heart transplant. And so that was an emotional time. And can you imagine the emotions that you know, we would have felt the morning when we got that call that a donor had been located? And, you know, this happened to us and it happened to a couple of families of, you know, we were, of course, you know, ecstatic. I mean, there, there's lots of emotions. But the funny thing is, especially in the pediatric world, 
there's only two hospitals in Canada that do transplants, or at least it, that was when, when, when we were in the process. So that's Toronto's Hospital for Sick Children and then the Stollery Children's Hospital in Edmonton where, where we were. So you know that of all the kids who are waiting for a transplant, they're likely going to be in one of those two facilities. So in the room where we at, it was a step-down unit uh, where there was four beds. Well, what and does that mean, step-down? Okay, so, so uh, an ICU, typically you have one-to-one -one nursing, typically. Uh, so this is uh, an ICE unit. So it's called immediate care environment. And the, the nursing ratio there, to give you an idea of the scale, is two-to-one as opposed to the one-to-one. So on a regular ward, a nurse may have, you know, five or six patients, you know, all depending on, on workload, et cetera. So here we were in this environment, and in those four beds, three of the kids are waiting for heart transplants. So when it comes to that population of who's waiting for a heart transplant, we know these people. We've gone for coffee with them. We've shared our stories. And what really frustrated me was when a family got their offer that the other families weren't told and it just boggled my mind that you know what we're all cheering for each other you know um one of the children in our room they got their call first before us and the ironic thing was we were a higher we were a higher priority and so in, in small children the size of the donor heart becomes really important uh, because it's very difficult. You can't put an adult heart in a child who's two years old. So the reason this other child was chosen was because she was physically larger and the donor was larger. And so that's why we are, we weren't selected. We weren't, we weren't an appropriate match for that donor. And the thing is, if someone had just explained that to us, because we all know each other, we know other families. And in that you know, pressure cooker of an environment, it's a perfect breeding ground for rumors. And the thing is, this is where misinformation and misunderstandings happen if you aren't upfront. Now, I realize that hospitals can't divulge personal information, but when you show up one morning and one family who you were visiting with the day before isn't there, you start to ask some questions. And so that's where it would be really important for you to have this, like, we want to know what's happening. Like the, the openness is really important and it helps us process why we weren't chosen when somebody actually explains. So this happened prior to us getting, so when we got our offer, of course, there was another little boy in Russell's uh, room who he didn't get his. And I asked the transplant coordinator, are you going to at least tell their family? And the answer was probably not. And it's like, they're going to find out eventually. Like it, it just seems so dishonest and so disingenuous. Like it's like, isn't that the human thing we should be doing? You know, it just, and, and, you know, it was, it was funny because, you know, a day that was, you know, a huge day for us. I mean, when we encountered that, it was really quite disappointing and really you know, kind of, you know, it, it, it took the wind out of our sails because, you know, here we were seeing, you know, you've spent weeks, you know, next to these people and, you know, it, it really you know, disheartens you to see like, oh, today wasn't their day. 
oh, you know. Yeah, it's it's such a small thing, but it can have such a big impact. Mm -hmm. And that's not the type of thing what, that we talk about when we typically talk about a quote unquote medical error. But that's something that's really nagged me over the years that, you know, that little boy actually did eventually get a transplant. Boy, I'd really like to know where he is and what he's doing. You know, did they have a good outcome? I don't know. And it's, you know, sometimes finding out some of these details, it, it means a lot. Does In a way, it sort of undermines your experience, your individually as a family and collectively as the families within that room. Mm -hmm. For sure. Because we, we were this exclusive little club, you know, uh, you know. Going through life and death together. Yep. So when I first became more aware of medical errors, and then I started to look into the data and discovered that it's third leading cause of death. And then on the other end of the spectrum around errors, we've got the airline industry and they're so open with the errors. And mm -hmm. we see the great safety record in the airline industry. Yet when we take a look at the medical industry, it's at the other end of the spectrum. So in Canada, we have, and I, I think it's the same in all provinces, that we have the Canadian Protective Medical Association, which acts sort of like insurers for doctors, hire their lawyers to protect them. Or, or uh, most, uh, I, I know within our region, uh, we have an insurer called HIROC. And so they insure the doctors for medical malpractice? Uh, not doctors, but the, the health regions. Uh, the doctors under the College of Physician Surgeons, that might be a different, a, a different but uh, we, you know, I'm, I'm very aware of HIROC, for sure. So given that model that Canada has, and it's so incredibly difficult for patients to successfully sue for medical error, no matter how egregious the error, there's a like less than 1% success rate. Mm -hmm. Because it's set up as such an adversarial legal mm -hmm. uh, model, what, if any, would you change about the way the Canadian system handles medical errors? I have to kind of flip roles here because one of the things that's I've learned a tremendous amount is that, you know, we went through our hospital experience. Uh, we spent basically a year, you know, in and out of hospitals, you know, basically living that. And then as I've become more of an advocate and I've been involved with committees, I've kind of seen the other side of the fence and kind of grown to the appreciation of what it's like for healthcare leaders, for executives. Um, I'm not letting them off the hook, <laughs> but it, it's important to see, see that side. Um, one of the things I've learned in that is that these aren't uh, emotionless automatons. These are real people and they actually really care. And they, they don't want these medical errors. And I think if it was within their power to do so, I think they would really want to really tackle this, the whole issue of patient safety and hospital harm. And these, the problem is we've created such a bureaucratic nightmare that it is nearly impossible for these people. To, 
no one on their own can just go in and say, no, we're changing this. Uh, it's extremely laborious, even basic, very simple policy development takes years. When I was working with some researchers, um, treatments from the time a treatment comes forward that research indicates that this is, this is a good treatment, it can take up to 17, 18 years to implement a treatment. In, in many ways, we're so risk averse, we're creating risk just because we are so risk averse. No one wants to question the status quo, there's liability issues, uh, different things. One thing that I learned, you know, even just in the last uh, few years, is that I know Manitoba has this legislation. I think it is in other jurisdiction. We have, uh, within our province, legislation that protects physicians and healthcare leaders from any liability just so that they can say they're sorry. I, I think the, the common vernacular is they have I'm sorry legislation where the thing is so that an honest conversation can happen and say, you know what, this is where we made a mistake. And they can talk to the family. And the thing is, that is, an that is not an admission of legal culpability. That's a different definition. So quite literally, the easiest thing for a health system can do is say they're sorry. But yet, we are totally resistant to it. And it, it boggles my mind. Um, I've seen I've seen quote unquote apology letters saying, you know, apologizing for the situation, you know, you know, acknowledging different facts of the situation. And then at the bottom, the bottom, there's this disclaimer of, well, anything that I said in here, you know, it, you know, can't be used against me in, you know, uh, this isn't a legal admission. It's like, you just totally undermined what you stated by putting that paragraph at the end and adding a disclaimer that you're saying you're not legally responsible. Well, if you knew what you were doing, our, our legislation protects you so that you can give family closure. It's just one of those things drives me crazy. Uh, but, but, the, but the thing is, is that we, we have create, we've created a system that is so intransigent you know, that do, you know, and, and the thing is, many of these issues, um, if you, if, if you interviewed most competent healthcare leaders and you ask them that question, if you could solve problems in healthcare, what would you do? I guarantee you they could list five or six things off their top of their head right now. And if you ask them, how come you aren't doing it? then you would get this long sorted story of, well, there isn't the political will to do it. Or, you know, this, there's a budgetary, you get all of the different components of the healthcare system of why we can't do this stuff. And, and the thing is, we just can't seem to break through that bubble of, of being able to be nimble, fast, innovative organizations. It's, this is something that we discussed recently. I mentioned that I, I chair our quality and patient safety and innovation committee. And I mentioned innovation there intentionally because we're, we're supposed to be looking because innovation is a big part of this. And yet we have a, a terrible track record 
on innovation. How many times has restructures happened in the healthcare system? I'm sure it's happened in Ontario, it happens in Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba. We go through this laborious process, oh, we're going to uh, consolidate. So we take the whole organization and we consolidate it. Well, then seven to 10 years goes by. Well, that was a terrible idea. We're going to, de we're going to you know, break things up and then we're gonna provide local, like we go through this cycle and we don't learn anything from it. When, when we elect a government and, and, and you know, they have all these really good intentions about trying to tackle healthcare issues and when their proposal is organizational changes, like just the structure of the organization, I know they haven't really thought this through and I know that they aren't serious because that isn't where having the structure in place to actually be able to change where we can let people take some chances. And I know to a lot of people introducing the word chance into something uh, in, in the, the context of taking a chance freaks people out. Well, you're playing with people's lives. No, there are really good ways of innovating in very safe ways. It's kind of eye-opening to think what has happened with COVID and all of the things that have been done. We have developed new testing technologies. We, have, we are fast-tracking vaccine development. All these things like uh, to develop a vaccine would take years. And we're talking about you know a, a, a one-year, 18-month time frame now it hasn't happened yet so the proof is in the pudding but the thing is when there is a will to change something when we're focused and have one goal in mind that's that's the problem and and so many times we have petty little turf wars and all this all this stuff that goes on where we block change and we block innovation i can give you dozens of examples of where this has happened and there are political influences and political considerations and all these different things get into it and it's like how do we just okay is it like let's just sit in a room and focus like what's the problem and focus on the problem it it, it, it it's just a constant pet peeve yeah i maintain it's a systemic problem i also theorize that the reason physicians have such a high suicide rate is because they come in with these ideals that they're going to be able to help people and then yeah. they come up against the system mm -hmm. which makes them have to give on some of those values and ideals and and that's hard for anybody especially when you're dealing with life and death right and and that is the lesson that i've learned as a patient advocate now taking on a healthcare leadership role as a board member is learning about these people and learning a little bit of an understanding of how they work and realizing, yeah, they really do care. And you know what, this is eating them up inside. It's, it's a very, very tough job. Yeah. Medical PTSD is not just about patients. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. When you talked about how the reaction to COVID has been so strong and focused and sort of really got our shit together all yep. around the world, it reminds me of uh, the AIDS pandemic eventually after the mm -hmm. first few years yep. of where we don't see that. Yeah. What I'm noticing in COVID is what the health leaders are, are not seeing intentionally, at least publicly, 
are the long COVID patients, the patients who don't recover. And when you say we haven't learned from previous times, every other big flu pandemic has caused a minority proportion of those survivors to be chronically ill. And mm -hmm. so here we are again, one more time, they're invisibilizing, medically marginalizing, traumatizing a group of patients because they haven't learned from the previous. And right. Canada has long COVID, technically turns into myalgic encephalomyelitis or ME after six months. Mm -hmm. So Canada already had the highest ME rates in the world and near mm -hmm. zero research funding. So mm -hmm. the Canadian healthcare system is egregiously bad at following up on mm -hmm. post-viral chronic illness. You, well, you, well you, you, brought up a, you brought up a very good point about uh, the, the people who have long-lasting effects. And this is something a, a few different patient advocates out there, I would attribute this to the person who came up with this term, but I, I honestly don't know. There was, I, I think I've heard it from two or three different people. It's the concept of healthy privilege. You, you always see these patients who, I was a kidney patient, I was on dialysis, and then I got a kidney transplant and everything is awesome now. Wonderful, I can go and I'm active, I can swim, I can hang out with my grandkids. You know, that's great for, you know, fundraising purposes and it's that feel good story. But many times, and in, in, you, you mentioned the AIDS epidemic, the COVID issues and some of the long lasting effects. We don't talk about the, the situations where, you know what, we treated them, we, we, you, know, we, 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 you know, they recovered, but it really wasn't, you know, what we thought it would be. You know, that's, that's one of the things that we have to be coached through dealing with a transplant with our son is that, well, it offered him a quote unquote normal life, but you know what? Normal isn't taking medications twice a day. Normal isn't going for blood work every two weeks. That's, that's where it's like, you know, it's like, well, you're being a real killjoy. Like what you had was a real success story. Yes. Yes, it was, but it does come at a price. And, and that's some of the things that sometimes we aren't very honest about. So your collective healthcare journeys and experiences, you've funneled into two books I've learned. Tell me about <laughs> those. Okay. So, so the first book I wrote, and the thing is, up until recently, I didn't really consider myself a writer. When our, my son crashed in hospital, and we had the 24 hours of hell, and I'm not underestimating that at all, we were uh, airlifted to Edmonton. Edmonton being the surgical reference center for uh, cardiac surgery in Western Canada. So at that point, our lives ended. And so one of the social workers suggested to me is that, you know what, there's this hospital blog page, it's called Care Pages. And the thing is, because you've been uprooted and you know family is going to be you know bombarding you with questions and you'll want to explain things to them start a blog so that you can inform people so the people can go to one point get the information and you don't have to repeat yourself numerous times on numerous phone calls you won't have time for it basically 
So we didn't think much of that suggestion at first. We were just a little bit overwhelmed. But after two or three days, it became very apparent. It's like, Ugh, we need to let family and friends know what's going on and, you know, keep them informed. You know, there's people praying for us, whether we like it or not, they're in this journey with us too. So that's where the whole idea of starting our care page came from. So that was basically a, a blog page that it's private. So you could only access it by invitation. It wasn't like Facebook. Facebook was fairly new at the time. So, so that's how, how it started. And I had never, I do a lot of writing through work, like writing manuals and business cases. It's all technical stuff, right? Never thought of myself as a writer. And so I ended up, uh, writing quite a few of these blog posts and you know it gets fairly boring after a while it's like oh sitting in the hospital again today you know drinking coffee you know it's like okay well then you start to think about well how can I convey to people kind of what we're going through my wife and I had to decide how much we would share because there were some things that we really weren't prepared to share at the time and so this thing as our journey progressed, it ended up, this whole uh, care page ended up monopolizing kind of and summarizing 18 months of our lives. As, uh, and after that period of time, I was like, okay, enough of this, I'm done. So what I did with that, it was all available online. And so there was an option uh, where we could get that printed. And, and so what I did was for my wife's birthday, I actually got one copy printed. It's a hardcover thing. You could kind of design it and then it's done on print on demand. And, and so that was basically the first book I wrote. And so my wife has the exclusive copy. It's hers and that's hers alone. So after that experience, I thought, okay, I'm done with this blogging silliness. I'm, I'm done with it. But then I kind of found that I, kind of missed it. And many, if I would go to a medical conference and, or speak at a workshop or, you know, on a panel, many times, you know, you get 20 seconds to respond to a question and you're always saying, you know, an hour later after you're done, it's like, oh, I had this really good answer. It's like, ah. And so that's where I kind of felt that need to start blogging again. And so I started my own blog. And that was, so the, the first one was private. It was for our own use. It was, you know, this, when I started the second blog, I call this my, my selfish, selfish indulgence. It's, it was, I call it my world. And that's what it is. It's like, if you want to read it, fine. If you don't, I really could care less. This is, this is my, you know, old man shouting at the clouds kind of endeavor. Sounds so, therapeutic. Oh, absolutely. For sure. And, and, uh, and so that's how I got back into the writing and you know, a few people have followed along and, and I get a little bit of feedback and many people have commented like, you know, with what you guys have gone through, like you, sh you should really write a book. I don't know how serious people were <laughs> at that suggestion, but it's kind of like, you know what? The thing I found was when people asked me a question, I could refer, you know what? I kind of wrote that, about that in my blog. And I kind of addressed it in a more intelligent and a more thought out manner. And so I could refer people to that or the thoughts had been clarified in my mind because through writing, I was forced to think about it, process it and kind of come up with an intelligent response. So when people had a question for me, 
I kind of had an instant response like, oh, I've thought about this. And so, so that became, and so that's when the idea of writing a, a, a formal book about our story came about. And, and so that was, so that's where I kind of joke that this is my second book. So, so, uh, so my wife has the first one and then this one is, is me. It's, it's about our family's experience. It kind of covers that 18 month period that my uh, original blog was about. But the thing is that I was able to add a lot of content that explains the reason why. I couldn't explain that at the time. We were making decisions and living in the moment and we had no clue what we were doing or why we were doing them. Uh, we were just reacting. And so with some time to reflect and kind of work through some of these things, I kind of had to go back and think, well, why did we do that? And why, you know, why were certain things important? Why did some things really hurt us? And, and so that was an interesting exploration just into figure out your own feelings as to how you, you processed basically, you know, six months living on the edge. And, and so, and kind of that, a little bit of the aftermath of, of that. So, so that's kind of what the book is about. And the, the other real motivator for writing the book was, you know, when we left hospital or have interacted with people who were with us in hospital, this kind of thing, we had this incessant need to say thank you, but thank you never really seemed to cut it. And uh, one of our... Um, one of our ICU nurses, and she actually wrote the foreword to the book, um, Jan Forche. She she uh, she responded to that question, like, uh, and her comment was, "You know what? Thank you is all we ask." And that really tells me a lot about many of the healthcare providers who we were exposed to, because I think many of them had that kind of attitude. It's like, you know what? It's part of the job. It's what we do. And, and thank you is, 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 is fine with us. So it's quite, quite a, a little journey. Yeah, and that made me think that often what I hear from folks who've been harmed by medical error is that all they wanted was, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. But yeah. that didn't come and it turned into a yep. big traumatic thing so sure. yeah i can see how it'd be very therapeutic and to go back and look at what you wrote at the time and to process that now in the present day that would be a, a very yeah that was that, that was one of the things like i i talked to my son's cardiologist about getting copies of of his chart because I, I was when i started out the project i i wanted to make sure i was medically accurate and technically right and this kind of thing and as i got down to this line of thinking I began to dispense with that and I actually went back to my blog and, and used a lot. That actually became my research because what this, came, what this became was there are some things that we misunderstood at the time. We may even have made some misunderstandings or uh, read something incorrectly to something, but you know what? That evoked an emotional response in us. And the thing is, even though we may have been technically in error, the feelings that we had coming out of that were very real. And so even if our understanding or our technical knowledge was somewhat lacking, how we were feeling was very real. 
And that's what I tried to focus on in the book. I tried to explain what we were feeling. And the thing is, uh, I even have a disclaimer in the book. It's like, there could be some technical inaccuracies in this book, but this is how it was explained to us. This is how we understood it. And this is how we felt about it and processed it and made decisions accordingly. Wow. And so what's the name of the book and where can folks find it? Okay. The book is called Heartbroken. Uh, I, I avoided trying to do heart play on words, but my publisher and I came up with this and, and, and it works for me. I was, I was okay with it. Um, so the book is called Heartbroken. It's our story of surviving medical tragedy. It's available online through Amazon, Barnes and Noble, who, who are the uh, chapters Indigo, uh, McNally Robinson, mo most places where you can order it online, it is available. Uh, and I'm trying to get it stocked in some of our local stores here in Winnipeg just for some local author content, but it's, it's all available. And it was uh, just released a couple weeks ago, so. Okay, and we'll include the, those links in the show notes sure. so people can click on them. Perfect. How can folks connect with you on social media? Okay, uh, I'm on Twitter, so at Donald Lepp, all one word, so D-O-N-A-L-D-L-E-P-P. -P. Uh, that's how I can, you can get a hold of me on Twitter. I am on LinkedIn and also on Facebook, all under the same name. That's the nice thing about having a unique last name is that I don't have to worry about uh, you know, having to use a really odd pseudonym online. So if you just hunt up Donald Lepp, even if you just Google Donald Lepp, you're going to find me pretty easily. There, there's only about two or three of us in North America. So, Oh, and where does Lepp originate from? Well, that's a very good question. And it's been quite a subject of debate in our family. Actually, my, uh, both my parents come from Mennonite immigrants from Southern Russia or what we now know as the Ukraine. And so the Mennonites were hitchhiking through Europe before, uh, before it was fashionable. So uh, our, our families would have come from uh, Prussia, part of Germany, or even into the Netherlands. I've heard a couple different versions of where our name came from, but apparently it has some Dutch roots, but uh, we, we, we've been all across Europe and, and, uh, and it's, it's a probably lesser known Mennonite name. Oh, wow, that's interesting. All right, thank you, Donald, for sharing your experiences and your insight into how the medical system works and doesn't work sometimes. And uh, encourage folks to find your book and give it a read. And love to hear the feedback, positive and negative. I'm I'm new to this writing thing, so I I have I, I love learning. And if you're constructive, I love listening to you. Well, there you go. There's the invitation for the folks who are listening. Okay, thank you, Donald. Hey, thank you very much for your time. Well, thanks to Donald for sharing his experiences with his wife and his family in the healthcare system. And keep a lookout for his book, Heartbroken. And thanks to you for listening. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to others. If you would like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, and all of the major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. 
And if you need the support of an experienced counselor for your own encounter with medical error and or living with a complex chronic illness or illnesses, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com.